This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. As has become an odd tradition, we are going out with a bang and covering a massacre to end the season, which is something that just kind of came about accidentally and organically, but is apparently my thing now. So the season one finale was the Italian Hall Massacre, which made sense. It was getting close to Christmas. This event happened on Christmas Eve. Season two was the Crouch Family Massacre. Season three covered the Kalamazoo Uber Massacre. And this year, this year's is the wildest one yet, I think. No, I'm positive. It definitely is. Today we are talking about the St. Aubin Street Massacres. Yes, I said massacres, as in more than one. Before we get into it, though, I do need to thank today's sponsor. Care of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. As the holiday season approaches, the days get shorter, calendars fill up, and to-do lists seem to get longer than ever. But amidst the chaos, it's important to make sure that you're still taking care of you, and Care of makes that as effortless as possible. You just take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized recommendation, and then that takes the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. Care of will ship your vitamins and supplements right to your door. No need to go outside. In this weather? Are you kidding me? Uh, The quiz is quick and easy. The ordering process is super simple, and you guys know how much I love the little personalized packets that these vitamins come in. Each packet has your name on it, along with an inspirational quote. No more fiddling with a zillion bulky pill bottles, measuring, sorting. If you're listening to this episode on release day, your girl is on vacation right now. And do you know how easy it was to just grab a packet for each day I'll be gone and toss them in my bag? They took up zero space, which I super appreciate because luggage fees are expensive. Tis the season to travel, and Care Of makes it ridiculously convenient to keep up with your self-care while on the go. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code SODEAD50. Again, that is TakeCareOf.com, promo code SODEAD50, and be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, let's get into it. The call to the Detroit Police Department came in just before 11 p.m. on Wednesday, April 4, 1990. There had been a mass murder in the Cadillac Heights neighborhood in a small, butter-yellow bungalow located at 17850 St. Aubin Street. The blood-splattered house was littered with bodies. Upstairs, downstairs, men, women, children, six in total. 
It was impossible to look at the brutality with which the murders were carried out and not believe in evil. Now, because I'm super dramatic, as we all know, I picture a detective sitting at his desk as the news rolls through the station, maybe like an older man in a faded dress shirt, his tie like slightly askew. Not again, he mutters. Too young to remember it himself, but old enough to have worked with people who did. He knows something that the rest of the department will soon realize. This is not the first St. Aubin Street Massacre. And while the circumstances between the two cases were very, very different, the end result was eerily similar. Six people slain with a level of brutality rarely seen, even in one of the most violent cities in America. Benjamino Evangelista was born in Italy on June 3, 1886. In 1904, when he was 18, he and his older brother Antonio immigrated to the U.S. and settled in Philadelphia, where Benjamino Americanized his name and started going by Benny Evangelist. The brothers were both skilled carpenters and hoped to build a new life in the new world whilst building houses and whatnot for others. But before long, Benny the Builder got sidetracked by a sudden fascination with the occult. The Evangelistas were a devout Catholic family, so this didn't sit well with his brother Antonio. So Antonio sent Benny off to York, Pennsylvania to work on the railroad all the live long day, and he settled in Detroit where he got married and started a family. Benny took a bit of a different path. If Antonio was trying to help Benny, like, get back on track by sending him to York, he could not have picked a worse place to send him as York was part of what was, and I believe still is, known as the Hex Belt, an area steeped in superstition and lore of the Pennsylvania Dutch folk, and a land where the locals once sought out the healing powers of witches over doctors, and where practicing witchcraft was not only the norm, it was profitable. It was here that Benny became really a religious fanatic. The religion? his own. He founded his very own cult, the Union Federation of America, and eventually even wrote his own four-volume Bible, The Oldest History of the World. It was also during this time that Benny befriended a man named Aurelius Angelino, who went by Leon. The two were about the same age. They were from the same town in Italy. They had immigrated to the U.S. at the same time, settled in the same area, and were both obsessed with the occult. It only makes sense that they became best friends. Unless... Nope, not yet. I'll save that sentence for later. Benny spent the next several years building his cult with Leon by his side until a horrific event rocked their community. In early 1919, Leon was involuntarily committed to the Lancaster County Insane Asylum as a maniac. A couple years earlier, he had been involved in an accident at work where he fell from a piece of equipment and sustained a severe head injury. He hadn't been right since, and his condition continued to deteriorate, resulting in him being sent to the insane asylum. His wife, Frida, said that prior to the accident, he was a good man, a good husband, and a good father. The Angelinos lived in a rundown shack, Not on the outskirts of New Orleans, but in a part of Lancaster County known as Little Italy. And here's where I remind you that we've talked about Lansing's Little Italy before, and in that episode, I mentioned this case. 
Just kind of like file that little tidbit away for later. Leon and Frida had four children. Helen, who was eight in 1919, Aurelius Jr., who was six, and four-year-old twin boys, Edwig and Offergi. I, I definitely said that wrong. It's spelled A-U-F-E-R-G-I. I have no idea how to pronounce that. After his accident, Leon was unable to work, so money was scarce. Once he was locked up in the local insane asylum, the community stepped in to make sure that his family had food and some basic necessities, but clothing was apparently a problem. So the kids were often seen running around the neighborhood, but ass naked. So Leon spent a little over three months in the asylum, during which time Frida made plans for them to travel back to Leon's hometown in Italy, where they had more of a family support system. Their voyage was scheduled to begin on May 27, 1919, so in early May, Frida petitioned the asylum to let Leon out, and they did. On Saturday, May 17th, 10 days before they were due to leave for Italy, Leon was released to his wife's care. While their report said that his behavior as a patient had been decent overall, it was clear to everyone who encountered him once he was released that he was not well at all. He spent that first Saturday lying in bed, babbling and singing nonsensical songs. On Sunday, he, Frida, and the two older kids went to a neighbor's house for an early supper around noon. The twins, Edwig and Offergi, were left at home in bed because they had no clothes. That's how poor this family was. They literally could not let their four-year-olds out of the house because they had nothing for them to wear. Which is weird to me because they were the smaller kids, so why would they not have had hand-me-downs from the older kids? It seems like those would have been the ones that would have been harder to keep clothed. I don't know, but I digress. So, Four of the six Angelinos got to go eat a nice meal. Uh, Leon was acting a fool the entire time. And then when they returned home, he asked Frida to make something for him and the kids to eat with some of the food that they'd pilfered from the neighbors. To which she replied, why? We just ate. To which I reply, not all of you, you hooker. Don't forget about your naked, starving babies in the back bedroom that did not get to go eat a nice meal with the rest of you. So Leon got mad and he struck her. So she agreed to cook something and she told him, you know, just go lay down with the twins until the food is ready. As she stood at the stove, she heard a strange pounding sound coming from the bedroom and it scared her. So she called to Leon and told him that the older kids who were playing outside wanted to see him. Leon emerged from the bedroom covered in blood, swinging an axe, screaming, This is how you do it. Then he went after Frida with the blade. She ran outside screaming, which caught the attention of neighbors. As she fainted from shock and fear, Leon retreated back into the house and he locked himself inside. By this point, pretty much the whole neighborhood had come out to see what was going on, Some of them helped Frida and the two older kids get away from the house. One neighbor went back inside and rang the police, and one brave soul actually approached the house. He didn't see Leon, but he heard him chopping away at something. Leon called out to the neighbor by name, and he said, Come on in and get some fresh meat. A few minutes later, he emerged from the house again, naked, 
a mangled four-year-old body over each shoulder with an axe in one hand and a knife in the other. The entire neighborhood watched as he dropped the twins' lifeless bodies on the ground, then one by one laid them out on his workbench and started chopping them into pieces. Yes, I'm saying what it sounds like I'm saying here. An entire neighborhood of people watched a man chop his four-year-old twins into pieces in his front yard, including the twins' mother, brother, and sister. When the police arrived, they took Leon into custody and started picking body parts out of the grass. This is so horrific. I just can't. Okay. Leon was taken to the Fairview Insane Sanatorium in Pennsylvania, and I wish I could tell you that he rotted there for the rest of his days. But in 1923, just four years after the murders, he escaped from the sanatorium and was never seen again. Or was he? Also, let me point out, this is just a side story. That's how fucked up today's case is. This is just like a tiny piece of the puzzle. In the early 1920s, our main character, Benny Evangelista, turned up in Detroit where his long-lost brother Antonio had settled and was raising a family. Benny was still working construction, but he'd also gotten into real estate, and he did pretty well at that. His main priority, however, was his cult. He became a self-proclaimed spiritual leader and mystical healer. He was selling potions and elixirs and doing readings and spiritual healing sessions at $10 a pop, which in today's money would be almost $170. So that's a lot of money. Um, To put that into perspective, $10 in the late 1920s was two full days wages on a factory assembly line, which was a good paying job back then. During this time, Benny also became a husband and a father. Now, the details around this are a bit murky, but what we do know is that in 1929, when Benny was 43, he was married to 37-year-old Santina Zenopia Evangelist, and the two had four children, Angelina, who was seven, Margaret, who was four, Jeannie, who was three, and Malio... I don't know how to pronounce it. It's M-A-U-L-I-O. Malio. I don't know. Um, He was one. He was one and a half. They had also had another son, Mario, who was born in 1923 but died in 1924. Now, the information I just gave you on names and ages comes directly from the Find a Grave website because literally every other article that I read had different names, different ages, different time frames. Super, super inconsistent. I don't think anybody really knows the truth, but I went with find a grave because that uses death records. So uh, if I don't have that correct, it's because find a grave doesn't have that correct. Now, some reports said that the kids weren't biologically Benny's and that he and Santina were actually only married for a couple of years and the kids were hers from a previous marriage. But oddly, nobody seems to be able to pin down an actual timeline I mean, it seems like there should be like a marriage certificate on file somewhere or something, but I wasn't able to find anything. And none of the articles I read had found anything either because everybody left this very vague and murky. Whatever the case, in 1929, Benny and Santina Evangelist and their four small children were living in a well-kept two-story home on the corner of St. Aubin Street and Mack Avenue in Detroit. It had a wide front porch, fresh green paint, and an odd attraction in the basement. 
A hand-painted sign could be seen from the street that read, Great Celestial Planet Exhibition. Visitors could pay five cents, which would be like less than a dollar in today's money. So it was a pretty cheap, pretty cheap thrill. Um, They could pay five cents to explore the little occult museum that Benny had built by hand in his basement. Built from paper mache and wax, suspended from the ceiling by wire over an elaborate altar, were nine grotesque figures meant to resemble the celestial gods from Benny's self-published Bible. Now, if you follow the So Dead page on Facebook or Instagram, you've seen this picture because I posted it as a spoiler with no context whatsoever. But when I tell you those things were fucking weird looking, they were weird looking. In the center of all of this was a giant electric eye that Benny had fashioned to light up. Aside from being a weird homemade museum, Benny's basement served as a ritual space for his cult, where he led chants, dances, animal sacrifices, and more. Benny's office was a bit more subdued, but still weird. There was a crucifix mounted on the wall behind his desk, two swords hanging from the wall, uh, a painting of the Last Supper, and Benny's costume, a wizard robe, wig, and beard that he wore when he gave his readings. So it's kind of like everything mixed together. His actual religion, he was raised as Catholic, and then all of his, his weird, all of his weird. This office, with all of the trappings a snake oil salesman might need, is where the most horrific of horrors began to unfold on July 3rd, 1929. Vincent Elias was a business associate of Benny's. They had a meeting scheduled that morning to finalize the deal for some land that Benny was purchasing. Vincent arrived at the Evangelista home, located at 3587 St. Aubin Street, at 10.30 a.m. on the dot. He knocked on the door, but no one answered. The house was silent, which struck him as weird, because the Evangelistas had four young kids. That house was always bursting with life and laughter and chaos. He tried the door, and it opened, but it was still eerily quiet. He made his way to Benny's office, where he found Benny sitting behind his desk, his hands folded as if in prayer, and his severed head lying at his feet. Vincent fled the house in horror and rang the police. The entirety of the Detroit Police Department descended upon the scene, and what they found was so much worse than anything they could have imagined. And they were already expecting to come and find a decapitated cult leader, so... Yeah, it it was bad. Benny was right where Vincent had left him, sitting headless at his desk. Strewn about the room were copies of Benny's cult Bible. Surrounding his head, which was positioned so that it was looking up toward the sky, were several photos of a baby boy in a coffin about to be buried. Turns out these were photos of Benny's infant son that had died a few years earlier. Upstairs, they found the bodies of the three young Evangelista girls in the bedroom that they shared. Seven-year-old Angelina, four-year-old Margaret, and three-year-old Jeannie. They'd all been hacked to death with an axe, their skulls crushed, and one of the girls' arms was nearly severed from her body. In the master bedroom, police found the bodies of Santina and 18-month-old baby Malio. They, too, had been murdered with an axe. Santina's head was nearly severed from her body, and little Malio's skull had been crushed. It was the worst mass murder in Detroit history at that time. 
The investigation was a shit show right from the start. Not only were dozens of police officers trampling the scene and destroying evidence, but nosy townsfolk descended upon the scene and for some reason were being allowed to enter the house while the bodies were still inside. And maybe allowed to enter. They were entering the house. So maybe police weren't like, hey, come on in, but they weren't stopping them or weren't doing a good job of keeping them out. As a result, the only real evidence police found was a single bloody footprint. Nope. Not a footprint. Could you imagine a bloody footprint on the doorknob? That'd be kind of weird. A bloody fingerprint on the doorknob on the front door. So there was not going to be an easy answer to the question that everyone was asking. Who was capable of such evil? Given the fact that Benny Evangelista was a cult leader who was obsessed with the occult, authorities started with their inner circle, family, friends, fellow cult members, But nobody was talking. Nobody seemed to know anything at all about the Evangelistas. So authorities turned to the family lawyer who didn't have a lot to share. Benny wasn't in any trouble with the law. He didn't have anything going on legally that might result in the axe murdering of an entire family. The family doctor told police that Benny was an insane religious fanatic and a maniac. But like... Tell us something we don't know, Doc. We saw those sculptures in the basement. We know he's insane. Detectives attended the Evangelista funeral and mass, and they mingled with the over 3,000 mourners that showed up, hoping to encounter somebody acting squirrely, but no leads came from that search either. So they retraced the Evangelistas last night on Earth. The belief was that they had been murdered sometime during the night on July 2nd. That evening... Benny had placed a call to the watchman of a property that was being demolished. He told them that he'd made an agreement to purchase the lumber from the demolition, and the two made arrangements for the wood to be picked up and delivered to Benny's house early the following day. Benny was supposed to meet the delivery crew and the watchman at the demolition site early the next morning so that he could pay for the lumber in cash. Benny never showed up because he no longer had a head. But his delivery crew never showed up either. And when the Evangelista home was searched, that large sum of cash that Benny was supposed to use to pay for the lumber was nowhere to be found. Unfortunately, there was no record of who this delivery crew was, so there was really nothing further to investigate there. As it turns out, the last people to see the Evangelistas alive were the first people to be arrested for the crime. Before we start naming suspects, though, I do want to thank the other sponsor for today's episode. Quick question. Have you started shopping for the holidays yet? No? Literally, why not? It's November. It's basically Christmas already. And you do know that most gifts don't expire, right? The only thing that'll go bad between now and December are the crowds at the mall. 12 children screaming, 11 minutes to find parking, 10 Karens Karening. Who wants that drama? Right now, you can shop early, skip the stress, and snag some of the best deals of the season on gifts that everyone will love. Premium audio products from Raycon. Whether you're looking for a useful, thoughtful gift or a stocking stuffer that's not a candle for once, Raycons are the way to go. Their wireless earbuds, headphones, and speakers offer premium sound, useful features, a fit so comfortable it almost feels customized and up to 54 hours of battery life. 
And as the person gifting them, you've got to love that they start at half the price of other premium audio brands. Raycon makes choosing the perfect gift easy with holiday gift guides for everyone in your life from your coworkers to your kids. You can even knock that list out all at once and get 30% off by shopping Raycon's holiday bundles. I'm a big fan of the Audio Lover Bundle, which comes with both earbuds and over-the-ear headphones, because depending on the situation, I like to switch back and forth. Both styles are available in a variety of colors, which is great. Everybody needs a pair of Raycons, whether it's for listening to music, taking work calls, or catching up on your favorite podcast. You know what everyone doesn't need? Two little white stems sticking out of their ears. Luckily, Raycons are sleek and stylish and come in a range of colors to match anyone's style. And sure, you can find Raycon in stores now like Kohl's or Walmart, but let me tell you right now, you're always going to get the best deal when you use my special link. Buyraycon.com, that's buy as in B-U-I, like purchase, buyraycon.com slash so dead. The Raycon website offers buy now, pay later options, which is always helpful, but especially around the holidays. So right now, go to buyraycon.com slash so dead and use code earlybf. That is E-A-R-L-Y, B as in black, F as in Friday, earlybf to get 20% off site-wide. That is 20% off any Raycon product, which almost never happens. Or save even bigger and get 30% off Raycon's exclusive holiday bundles. Again, that's code earlybf for early Black Friday at buyraycon.com slash so dead for 20% off your Raycon purchase or 30% off your holiday bundle. Buyraycon.com slash so dead. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, all right, all right. Back to today's nightmare. 42-year-old Umberto Tecchio and 34-year-old Angelo Dipoli were arrested the night of July 3rd, the same day that the bodies were found. So within about 24 hours of the murders, they had suspects in custody. The night of the murders, the two men had stopped by the Evangelista home so that Tecchio could make the final payment on a house that he'd bought from Benny. According to both men, nothing out of the ordinary occurred. They gave Benny the money, they talked for a minute, and then they went out for a drink, just the two of them. But when police went to question the men who lived together, they found a stained razor and a stained axe in the barn next to a freshly washed pair of boots. The men were held while the items were tested for any trace of blood. Angelo, who said that he barely knew the Evangelistas, was reportedly a regular visitor at the house, and he was believed to be a member of Benny's cult. And Umberto had just been arrested for murder back in April, not even three months prior. He'd stabbed his brother-in-law to death during an argument, but he claimed self-defense, and after an investigation, he was not charged. When the test came back that no human blood was detected on the razor, the axe, or the boots, Dipoli and Tecchio were released, but remained persons of interest. Especially when, a few years later, a newspaper delivery boy reported that he had seen Tecchio at the Evangelista home the morning the bodies were found. Not the night before, but that morning. By then, Tecchio was dead, so police weren't able to pursue that any further. Another theory was that the case was related to another axe slaying of an entire family in a Detroit suburb just a couple weeks earlier. On June 17, 1929, 
37-year-old Anna Poldowski and her three daughters, 10-year-old Josephine, 3-year-old Margaret, and -and one-and-a-half-year-old Pauline, were found dead in their home, all having been horribly mutilated by an axe. I was only able to find a few articles on this one, and we'll get to kind of why in a minute, but it sounds like this case also went unsolved. So Anna's husband, according to the very little bit of coverage that I found, had left her about seven years before her murder, which means that only the oldest daughter would have been his. One article also said that there was a 16-year-old daughter who was away at boarding school at the time of the murders, so she was probably the husband's as well. Uh, the two younger girls, though, were believed to be the daughters of Joseph Chapinski, Anna's common-law husband who had left her just a few months before she was killed. Although, people said that they had seen him around town again in the days before the murders. So, police were looking for him in the last article that I found, but there was, again, so little coverage on this case that I don't know if they ever found him or whatever happened with that. Two other men that Anna was having relations with had been arrested for the murders, but again, literally only found articles from like the two, three days after it happened. I assume, though, that these men were released because the crime was vaguely referenced and still classified as unsolved when the Evangelista murders happened a couple weeks later. But why would there be such little info out there on the axe murdering of an entire family like this? I really don't know, but it's clear that for whatever reason, police did not give a shit about this case. (laughs) Listen to this snippet from one of the four and a half articles that I was able to find. Despite an intensive search by Boy Scouts, the axe with which the crime was committed has not yet been recovered. They had the fucking Boy Scouts out there searching for the murder weapon. (laughs) What? I cannot. So, Unsolved axe murder of a woman and her three children in a Detroit suburb in June of 1929, and then unsolved axe murder of a couple and their four children two weeks later, less than 20 miles away. Police compared fingerprints from both scenes, and they didn't find any matches, so they ruled out any kind of connection between the two cases, but it still sounds pretty suspicious to me. Another theory, and listen— There were a ton of different theories and suspects and persons of interest, but we're only going to talk about my favorites because this is one episode, not a mini-series, and it could have been. So another theory is that the Black Hand, La Mano Nera, was involved. Black Hand is a multi-use term. It was a type of extortion racket perpetrated by the Italian mafia, as well as the name used for the people doing it. So the Black Hand, or the Black Hand Society, was behind the black handing, because that's not confusing at all. But we've talked about this before in the infamous Fruit War episode, which is about to jump into this shit show and shake it all up. Real quick, though, for anyone who might not be familiar, black hand extortion basically involved threatening a business or a person into paying for not protection, really, but the absence of violence. Victims would get a letter often adorned with a black hand, which is why the term was used, saying something like, It would be such a shame if your building exploded. Pay us $2,000 and maybe it won't. Now, if you ignored the letter, your building got blown the fuck up. If you acquiesced, listen to that big word I just used, maybe your building didn't get blown up, but you just kept on getting those letters and getting blackmailed. 
It was a lose-lose situation. Black-handing was perpetrated primarily by the Italian mafia, and it was rampant in Little Italy against other Italian immigrants. And most industrial cities had their own Little Italy. Lansing had a Little Italy. Detroit had a Little Italy. And the Evangelistas, who, before they were cult-leading weirdos, were Italian immigrants living in Detroit's Little Italy. But, I mean, the fact that they were Italian is not really enough of a reason to just suspect the black hand. However, when police tracked down members of the Evangelista family who'd left Detroit just to kind of question them about the family, what they were like, did they have any enemies, etc., many of them pointed to the black hand society. Police ruled out this theory because the practice of black handing was pretty much outdated at that point, and the Italian mafia had other ways to extort money out of people. But, like... Just because something's not in anymore doesn't mean it's not still happening here and there. So let's talk about it a little bit. Benny Evangelist, husband, father, cult leader, Italian immigrant, and successful realtor, lived in Little Italy in Detroit. It stands to reason that he, a realtor, would fill the houses around him with friends and family. Back in the 1920s, transportation obviously was not what it is now. Families like to kind of stick close together, all live in the same neighborhood, so it was easy to go back and forth. All of this to say that Benny's cousin, Louis Evangelista, lived directly across the street from him at 3532 St. Aubin Street with his wife and her family, the Popraros. Louis's father, Angelo Paparo was the victim of black-hander Felice Argento in 1926, three years before the murders. Argento demanded $5,000, which would be about $84,000 in today's money. So Angelo must have been pretty well off. Angelo did exactly the right thing, I think. He stalled the black-hander. He contacted the police, and the police were like, cool, we've got this. Tell him you've got the money, set up a time for him to come pick it up, we'll be there, and we'll arrest him, and we'll get this trash off our streets. So Angelo and Louie, who, again, was his son-in-law and Benny's cousin, laid the trap. They called that dirty black hander over to pick up his bag of cash. Felice Argento, who was 33, fell for the trap, and he went to the house on February 19, 1926, to get his money. But guess who fucked it all up? The police did because they weren't there. So there was a confrontation. You know, the point at which the police were supposed to barge in and save the day didn't happen. So Angelo and Louis wound up shooting and killing Felice Argento. And the police were like, hey, yeah, that was our bad. We totally fucked that one up. We'll help you get out of town. And they did. So members of the Evangelista family who lived directly across the street from Benny killed a blackhander and then skipped town. It stands to reason that if the blackhand society was looking for revenge, they might go after the next closest target, right? The family members across the street. But that's not that's not the only connection. While detectives were working the blackhand theory, they got information that Benny himself might have been a black-hander. Not Benny. A man told police that when he got shaken down by the Black Hand Society, Benny acted as the middleman for the transaction. So the connection to the Black Hand Society is definitely there. Was Benny a member? Was he a victim? Was he both? 
And then here is where I put forth my own bullshit theory, since we're talking about Little Italy's and the Italian Mafia and the Black Hand Society. If you listened to the Fruit War episode earlier this season, this name should sound vaguely familiar. Harry Rossi. Harry was a black hander, a member of the Italian Mafia, and a big old troublemaker in Lansing's Little Italy in the 1920s. He killed people. He blew things up. He bootlegged. He black-handed. In 1927, just days after Harry's wife informed him that she was leaving him, Harry blew up his house in Lansing and disappeared. He eventually made his way down to Detroit and began calling himself Frank Messina. As Frank, he got into all kinds of trouble. He was wanted for murder in New York. He was still running from the police in Lansing. So he hid out in Detroit's Little Italy in a house located at 1540 St. Aubin Street. St. Aubin Street, less than a mile from the Evangelistas. But was Lansing's own Harry Rossi really capable of the type of violence seen inside the Evangelista home? I don't know about capable, but he was surely unhinged enough. On August 17, 1929, a month and a half after the Evangelista murders, Harry returned to Lansing just long enough to try to murder his brother's wife after she filed for divorce. He shot her in the neck in broad daylight, didn't kill her, and then took off again. In 1931, the violence Harry Rossi put out into the world for so many years came back to him, and he was found slumped over in his car on the side of the road with two bullets in the back of his head. A newspaper at the time said, Police believe Rossi was killed by members of a Lansing fruit racketeering ring. Which is a sentence I will repeat whenever given the chance (laughs) because the fact that my little Lansing had a fruit racketeering ring will always be one of my most favorite things. Now, here's the question. Did I just waste everybody's time by bringing in a story with no connection? Or did I just solve the St. Aubin Street Massacre? Because if it wasn't Harry Rossi, who else could it have possibly been? Well, I have thrown a lot of names and information at you, but in the midst of it all, we've got nine children who have been axe-murdered in three different incidents. That's a lot. But let's not forget about the first two, the twin sons of Aurelius, Leon, Angelino, Benny Evangelista's old pal from Pennsylvania, his day one, the man who helped him start his cult. What are the chances that both Benny and Leon's children would wind up hacked to death by an axe. Now, there are several theories here, and I'll save my favorite for last. The most simple is that Leon, after he escaped the insane asylum in Pennsylvania in 1923, found his way to Detroit, and he murdered the Evangelista family just because. He was clearly insane, and we know he was capable. He did it to his own kids. But then let's consider the cult aspect. Benny performed animal sacrifices. So sacrificing the blood of innocence was something he pushed onto his followers. What if the children were sacrificed as part of a cult ritual, one that Benny and Leon came up with together? Or Benny preached about animal sacrifice and Leon twisted it and thought that, you know, whatever power came from that sacrifice would be more effective if it was children instead of animals that were sacrificed. And then, of course, Benny and Santino weren't just going to let someone kill their kids, so they were collateral damage after Leon had killed the children. 
Or what if Leon had been hiding out with the Evangelista family? What if they'd been harboring him in their big, beautiful house and he just snapped on them one day the same way he'd snapped on his own family? Or there was a theory that Benny believed he could be brought back to life. What if he and Leon killed the family together, then Leon killed him thinking he would come back and panicked when he didn't? Police considered all of this, and they decided the best way to figure out if Leon was involved was to compare the bloody fingerprint found at the Evangelista crime scene to the bloody fingerprints found at the Angelino crime scene 10 years earlier, because they knew those were Angelino's prints. The police literally saw him committing the crime. Those were his fingerprints, so they were going to compare them against the prints at the Evangelista house to see if he had been there. The prints were not a match, which meant that Angelino did not leave the bloody print on the Evangelista's doorknob. But you guys, hold on to your butts, because holy fuck, this is wild. The bloody fingerprints found at the Angelino home the day that Leon Angelino's twin sons were murdered didn't belong to Leon Angelino. They belonged to Benny Evangelista. So when (laughs) police had never tested those fingerprints because why would they, right? They saw Angelino doing it. But then when they tested them to try to see if they matched the ones at the Evangelista house, they came back as a match to Benny Evangelista. So all this time they thought those fingerprints were Leon's and they were Benny's. They were Benny's. Yeah, yeah, so I can't. I've had a while to process this, and I still can't really wrap my head around what it means. The easiest explanation, I think, is that the whole sacrifice the children for the good of the cult theory was accurate, and Benny helped Leon chop his kids up in 1919, only for Leon to help Benny chop his kids up 10 years later in 1929. But here's why that theory does not work. The entirety of York, Pennsylvania's Little Italy, including the police force, watched Leon Angelino dismember his children. If Benny Evangelista had been there too, helping, they would have seen him. They would have seen if there was another man there. Leon didn't live in a big house where Benny would have been able to hide anywhere. He lived in this tiny shack with a single bedroom. So Benny Evangelista couldn't have been there, not to mention that Leon's wife was inside the house when the crime started. So you've got witnesses inside the house and a ton of witnesses outside the house. If there had been two men there, someone would have seen them both, and they didn't. They only saw one man. So Benny Evangelista couldn't have been there, but his fingerprints were there. What does that mean? What if Benny Evangelista and Leon Angelino were the same person? This is a theory that a lot of detectives believed. Think about it. They were the same age. They were from the same town in Italy. They immigrated to the U.S. at the same time. They settled in the same small Midwestern town. They didn't meet until they were both living in York, Pennsylvania, of all places. They were both obsessed with the occult. They had both been declared insane maniacs by their physicians. They were never seen together in the same place at the same time, right? Nothing that I found ever reported anyone that knew both men. There are lots and lots and lots of photos of Benny Evangelista, but there are zero photos of Leon Angelino. Leon escaped the insane asylum in 1923 
which is right around the time that Benny showed up in Detroit. I just, as insane as it sounds, and I know it does, to me, it makes more sense that they're the same person than it does if they're two different people. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I'm no historian. I don't do like the ancestry research. So someone could come to me and prove to me that, you know, at birth, the two men were two different people. But who's to say? They met in 1904. Leon killed his family in 1919. Who's to say that in between 1904 and 1919, something didn't happen to the real Leon Angelino and then Benny Evangelista took over his identity? Happened all the time. Happened all the time. So Benny slash Leon tried to kill his entire family once and he got interrupted in the middle. And then he had to wait exactly 10 years to try again. The fact that he got his head chopped clean off the second time does complicate my theory a little bit. But there was that theory that he thought he could come back from the dead. Maybe he thought that they all could. He was a rich guy and a cult leader. I'm sure he could have paid somebody to chop his head off for him. What do you guys think? Does that, am I, does that sound so wild that it must be true? Because as much as I want my Harry Rossi theory to be true, because come on, I solved the Zodiac case as a teenager. Now I'm solving the St. Aubin Street Massacre by forcing puzzle pieces together that don't really fit. I am out here doing the Lord's work. But the Tyler Durden of it all, like Leon and Benny, the same person, and it's even been theorized that maybe, maybe the reason that the wife and kids timeline is so wonky is because Santina Evangelista was really Frida Angelino. Frida was the one who petitioned to get Leon out of the asylum when he was still clearly madder than a hatter. And even after watching him hack her babies to bits, she told authorities that she didn't blame him and that he was a good man. Did she help him escape and then go on the run with him? And what about the two older Angelino kids, the ones that survived the 1919 attack? They couldn't have been passed off as the older Evangelista kids because they were 8 and 6 in 1919 when Leon killed the twins. So they would have been, you know, 18, 16 at the time of the Evangelista murders. And the Evangelista kids were much younger than that. So what happened to them? Maybe, maybe the wife thing has taken it too far, but the Leon and Benny thing, like, I... I'm into it. What about you guys? I want to hear your opinions on this seriously. Officially, on the record, here's where these cases stand today. Aurelius Leon Angelino, who chopped his four-year-old twins to bits in front of his entire neighborhood, was never seen again after escaping from a Pennsylvania asylum in 1923. I was able to find any information on what became of his wife, Frida, or his two surviving children— Helen, and Aurelius Jr. As far as I was able to find, the axe murderer who killed Anna Podolsky and her three young daughters in River Rouge in 1929, two months before the Evangelista murders, was never caught. And the axe-wielding madman or woman that killed the Evangelista family in Detroit in 1929 has never been identified making it one of Detroit's oldest and most infamous cold cases. The Evangelista family is buried in a family plot at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Detroit. But good luck finding it. Either they never had headstones, the markers were removed at some point or damaged or overgrown because it's nothing but a grassy knoll today. 
Surprisingly, realtors had a hard time reselling that house located at 3587 St. Albans Street, so it was eventually torn down. Today, it remains an empty lot that many say is haunted by the headless ghost of cult leader Benny Evangelista. And here, friends, is where I should say goodbye. Adieu. But I can't. Because as I stated at the beginning of the episode, there have been two St. Aubin Street massacres. When the Detroit Police Department received word on April 4th, 1990, that another St. Aubin Street home had been turned into a slaughterhouse with six dead bodies inside, I'm sure they thought it was a joke at first. Again? We still haven't solved the first one. But the horror was very real. It began with a scream. A high-pitched voice, frantic, terrified, begging for help. The house at 17850 St. Aubin Street was a known drug house, so it wasn't unusual for strange things to go on there. But this was different. A young woman who appeared to be in her early teens had crawled out onto the house's roof. Covered in blood, she screamed over and over, They killed them all. They killed them all. Not an hour earlier, that same girl was planning to go roller skating with her new boyfriend on a Wednesday night. Only identified in newspaper articles by her nickname, Janet, for safety, the young girl was actually a 20-year-old Detroit resident. Petite, with a high-pitched voice, Janet was often mistaken not just for a teenager, but for a young teenager, like 13, 14, which definitely raised eyebrows when she was out with her boyfriend, 32-year-old, 6-foot-tall, 200-pound drug dealer Steve Owens. According to Janet, the two spent the day of April 4th together visiting friends and whatnot. When they decided to go roller skating, Steve said he wanted to go home, shower, and shave first. The couple arrived at his St. Aubin Street home at about 9.30 that night, unaware that trouble awaited them. As they approached the house, Steve's ex-girlfriend, 18-year-old Tamara Marshall, who went by Honey, approached. Janet didn't know Honey, but she knew of her. Honey came from a rough family, and I mean rough with a capital R, and had a reputation for setting people up to rob them. Janet went into the house while Steve remained outside talking to Honey. Inside the house were 16-year-old Bobby Lee Frazier, who was living there, and 21-year-old Carl Williams, who was visiting. So, aside from old midlife crisis Steve, everyone involved in this situation is very young. Like, kids, babies even. After a few minutes, Steve and Honey entered the house together. Honey stayed for about 10 more minutes before taking off. At that point, Janet went upstairs to watch a movie while Steve went to hop in the shower. What they didn't know was that Honey didn't leave. She just went to get reinforcements. A few minutes later, Janet realized Honey was back when she heard her yelling Steve's name. The queen of minding her own business because if some ex-girlfriend of my boyfriend's is coming over and won't leave and keeps coming back in the house, back in the house, like, I'm going to see what's going on. But Janet didn't. She remained in the bedroom watching her movie. And then before she knew it, Honey was standing in the door holding a gun. Janet laughed at first, thinking it was some kind of joke, to which Honey replied, You must think you're really bad. You don't think I'll shoot you? Honey rifled through Janet's purse, then ordered her downstairs. It wasn't until the two young women reached the dining room that Janet realized how serious the situation was. 
Her big old boyfriend, Steve, and his two house guests, Bobby and Carl, were seated on the floor, lined up against the wall with another young man, 15-year-old Robert Hill, who'd stopped by at the worst possible time. Standing over them were two of Honey's accomplices, 19-year-old Jamal Biggs and 20-year-old Mark Bell. Her other accomplice, 19-year-old Mark Kaysen, was outside waiting in the getaway car. So again, save for old Steve, these are all children. Though the assailants were young, they were not inexperienced. 18-year-old Honey had a long criminal history of drug and robbery charges. 19-year-old Jamal had already served prison time for armed robbery. And 20-year-old Mark Bell had multiple charges on his record. Weapons charges, armed robbery, and felonious assault among them. Only Mark Kaysen, Honey's 19-year-old friend who was quite literally just along for the ride, had no criminal record. So three kids, 18, 19, and 20, are now holding four other kids, 15, 16, 20, and 21, hostage, along with a 32-year-old man who had no business surrounding himself with all of these goddamn children. Outside, there was another kid, a 19-year-old who was in way over his head, behind the wheel of a getaway car. What could possibly go wrong here? Only everything. According to witnesses, 18-year-old Honey was the mastermind of the operation. She was the one calling the shots. She was the one who wanted to hit a lick, as they called it. Uh, The three took turns holding their hostages at gunpoint while they ransacked the house for drugs, money, and valuables. What Honey hadn't considered was that Steve's house was a very active drug house, so while all of this was going on, people kept coming to the door and entering the house. Some saw what was going on and fled. Some were turned away at the door. And some, like 22-year-old Rodney Lewis and 18-year-old LaVon Robinson, were added to the hostage count. Eventually, the hostages were herded up a narrow stairwell to the second floor and split up between the three small bedrooms. Before long, gunshots began to ring out. In the chaos, a few hostages, who were unnamed for safety reasons, were able to escape. Of the seven hostages that remained in the house throughout the hour-long ordeal, only Janet was left alive. 32-year-old Steve Owens, 22-year-old Rodney Lewis, 21-year-old Carl Williams, 18-year-old LaVon Robinson, 16-year-old Bobby Frazier, and 15-year-old LaVon Robinson were all shot execution style. Six more lives lost to St. Aubin Street. Unlike the first St. Aubin Street massacre, this one wasn't hard to solve. There were multiple surviving witnesses. 18-year-old Tamara Honey Marshall, 19-year-old Jamal Biggs, 19-year-old Mark Kaysen, and 20-year-old Mark Bell were all arrested within a week. Here's a shocking tidbit. When Honey was arrested, she was the fourth of five Marshall children to face murder charges. She had a brother serving time for murder, a brother and a sister awaiting trial for murder. Only the youngest Marshall child, an eight-year-old, remained unsullied. Honey, Jamal, and Mark Bell were all convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Mark Kaysen was offered a plea deal. He pled guilty to second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Honey is now 51 years old and is currently housed at the Women's Huron Correctional Facility in Ypsilanti. 
Jamal Biggs is also 51 and currently calls the Muskegon Correctional Facility home. Mark Bell is now 52, and he is at the Richard A. Hanlon Correctional Facility in Ionia. You know we had to get one last Ionia connection in this season. And Mark Kaysen served about 10 years before being released sometime around 2000. As for the robbery gone awry that resulted in six people being murdered, $2,000 cash, $300 worth of cocaine, and a couple hundred dollars worth of jewelry split four ways with only a week to spend slash use it all before everyone was arrested. What a fucking waste. And that is the true story of the two St. Aubin Street massacres in Detroit. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main source for this episode for both stories was old newspaper articles, but I did get info from a few online articles as well, and you'll find a full listing of those on the page for this episode on the SoDead website. All right, that is a wrap on season four. This year, there were 15 new episodes and eight mini episodes. We talked about Eileen Warnos, the Lake Michigan Triangle, the strange death of Eaton County Constable Tom Toes, which I've learned is Toaz, actually, um, but I'm still going to say Toes, the Livonia Axe Murders, Lansing's Fruit War, the Boy Under the Billboard, the Jeepers Creepers Murder, finally. We talked about women in trouble who wound up dead due to archaic patriarchal bullshit laws, the Mackinac Bridge deaths, the deadly Detroit riots, the Charlotte Chop Shop murders, the wild girl in the picture case, the mass murder at the old Michigan National Building in downtown Lansing, how fucking haunted Bath is, and not one, but two St. Aubin Street massacres. Which episode this year was your favorite? Let me know on the So Dead Facebook or Instagram page. I also gave you eight true crime books to add to your TBR list, so if you haven't written them all down yet, grab a pen because here they all are one more time. The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Book of Atlantis Black, The Three Death Sentences of Clarence Henderson, The Brothers, Starvation Heights, Luke Karamazov, We Thought We Knew You, and American Demon. So Dead hit a huge milestone this year, one million downloads, and that is because of all of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I need to give a quick shout out to everyone that's left a review on Apple Podcasts over the last few months. I can only shout out the Apple reviews because those are the only ones that I can see anymore. Uh, I've got some lovely, lovely reviews lately, and I don't think you guys all know how much those mean to me. Like, they really do mean a lot. So thank you to Beachy Breezy, JMDJC, Jim Rat Goral, PW from GR, FGRFHS, True Crime Forever, 12 Cora, Jewel Pem, I Heart My Life Forever, <laughs> Perilous, uh, K-L-Y-N-S-T-J-A, don't make me try to say that, L.L. Elliot, Riggs Olds, SF929, Blueberry 2K15, Mike F65, Becky Joe 203, Tiger Killer 1974, Rapmon 3, Noval... Okay, so the N-O-V-A-L, Noval, I believe, I can say. The Y-L-E-R, no, Y-L-R-E-B-M-I-K. I I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I'll hatchet it, but thank you. Um, 
T. Osborne 917, Sue B. Honey 63, B. Foxy 27, Ma Mama Megan, love it, uh, Tennessee Crime Junkie, Darwin Evans, Tammy 1972, and Serena Sun 32. Thank you all for taking the time to leave thoughtful, lovely reviews. It just warms my cold little dead heart. And one last time this year, I need to thank my Patreon subscribers. You all are the most patient, forgiving group of people ever. I have been literally drowning in work this year. And while I always honor all of the promised benefits, sometimes it takes me a while. Uh, And right now I'm more than a few months behind and nobody ever complains or gives me shit about it. So thank you for that. Rest assured, all of your bonus episodes and giveaways and things of that nature are coming My goal is to have everything caught up by the end of this year. So something to consider for those of you not yet in on the Patreon party. While the regular season is over, patrons will still have six bonus episodes (laughs) coming this year. That's how far behind I am. Uh, And then there's the whole backlog of bonus episodes that you can listen to as well. I don't know how many there are, but there's a lot because I've been doing bonus episodes for like three and a half years now. So anyway, to my patrons... Thank you so much. I'm going to list their names here. Uh, Yeah, sorry, this is going to take a couple minutes, but I got to do it because I love you guys so much. So thank you to Abby Smith, Carla Salinas, Megan Petty, Angela Ryan, Crystal Weeks, Andrea Bazaar, Jody Sika. No, Judy Sika. I was so concerned about mispronouncing Andrea's last name, which I'm sure that I just did, that I messed up Judy's very simple first name. Judy Sika, Lake and Parker, Larry Kirchhoff, Meredith Brewer, April Vanderslick, Tamara Hicks-Siren, Rebecca Asseltine-Cuffer, Stephine Farver, Carrie Kirtley, Shannon Stauffer, Deidre Fortino, Stephanie Christie, Julie Smith, Dr. Robin Bellamerick, Kelly Brown, Jill Burke, Megan Pennington-Dunbar, Diane Krause, Katie Bulow, Sarah Theobald, Audrey Carlson, Debbie Doss, Deborah Viegas, Lori Martucci, Lisa Sexton, Paloma Brianna, Nicholas Drew, Christine Newton, Caitlin Zemla, Miranda Revere, Anne Elspa, Rochelle Anthony, Alicia Hadley, Allie Bateman, Julie Villastrigo, Morgan Vermetti, Allison Mole, Jessica Hexham, Michelle Bassard, Erin Early, Nicole Spica, Courtney Potter, Quinn Cervantes Prevo, Rebecca Barrett, Amanda Zimmerman, Jamie Nordman, Jill Levengood, Shelby Denstead, Shannon Howard, Colin Anzacek, Susie Week, Amanda Moorer, Tracy Forrest, Laura Carl, Tara Burninghand, Amber Santana, Luann Hun, Sarah Cook, Bonnie Thurston, Cindy Wright, Monica Kehoe, Melissa Doss, I'm almost done, guys, I promise, Denise Thomas, Stephanie Black, Diana Chambers, Shelby Morley, Maggie Helwig, Darla Thomas, Misty Cook, Gay Mullen Brown, Mandy Westfall, Sue Lewis, Heather LaFave, Nikki Whitney, and Tammy Austin. I'm so sorry to anyone whose name I butchered, but thank you all so much for your support over the years, and thank you to everyone else for sitting through that long-ass roll call list. So, season four, Elfin. Season five will be coming your way early next year. Between now and then, please stay safe, take care of yourselves, 
have a good holiday. Let's make 2023 our bitch. And as always, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.